0: Our, uh, our, our choir orchestra, Troy, Danielle, everybody's been here since about 5.30 a.m. Why don't you thank him again for a great job? It's, a, it's, it's really the day where we ask people to give a lot, and, and so I appreciate all of you As well, those of you in the town center, it's just, you know, we've had 10 services today beginning at 6.30 this morning. We still have one more time slot at 12.45 over in our venue. So, you know, Easter is is hands down the the biggest Sunday of the year for obvious reasons uh, for the Christian church. And in America, you know, this will be the most well-attended Sunday of the year. It's just a lot of people visit churches on Christmas and Easter, so maybe you're visiting here today. We like to fun-lovingly remind you that we have services between now and next Christmas (laughs) and that you are welcome back anytime and that we're super glad that you decided to visit with us today. That's why we told you about that margin series that's starting next week. I've been a student of margin now, as you'll hear next week, for about 20 years. I'm a big old hypocrite when it comes to it. Uh, I I tend to fall into the American trap like the rest of us, and and I get robbed of time margin and emotional margin, relational margin, at time even financial margin. But uh, we all tend to push the boundaries in our lives. It's kind of the American thing to do. But psychologists and certainly the Bible have said for years that that we're dangerously, we do that to our own peril, it's a dangerous thing to do. And so we're going to explore that the next few weeks at our church, and we invite you back for that. Today, however, we are obviously talking about the theme of the morning, and it's the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to take a little bit of a different take on it today, and so hang on to your pew. Why don't you pray with me? Father. Thank you for uh, our time up to this point, for the last 30 minutes, where we've sung to you, we've been sung to, we've saw some videos, we've fellowshiped with each other. Hopefully, hopefully Lord, all in preparation for now talking about the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that's the, the, the day that we set aside today, that's what we do, is celebrate Jesus risen from the dead. Yet, Lord, for some of us, it can seem kind of surreal, maybe not even very real, And Lord, we're here to talk about that and to try to get in touch once again, if not for the very first time, uh, with what the meaning of this day is, both in history and for us, for our lives today. So God, speak to us, we pray right now, through your word, and may you be honored in what we're about to talk about. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So here's the question I have for you. I'm going to put it up there on the screen, and it's simply this, did Jesus really come back to life? Did Jesus really come back to life? And I know what some of you might be thinking right now, you're thinking, come on, Rasmussen. I mean, this is Easter. What are you? Casting doubt already on Easter Sunday of whether Jesus rose again from the dead? I mean, we're all here because we're pretty well convinced of that. But but I think it's a good question to ask nonetheless, and I'll tell you why for two reasons. One, that even if you're already convinced of the resurrection in your faith today, you can never have too much surety and confidence, especially in our age of skepticism, that truly the faith that you have is built upon solid ground. So it's a good question to ask, did Jesus rise from the dead? The second reason, however, this is important is that we're going to see you and I live in a day and age today in which there has been cast a lot of doubt on the most important aspect of our Christian faith this idea of Jesus's resurrection but one only need watch a History Channel special or an MSNBC special or a PBS special this time of year to realize that there's people out there that are, are, are doubting whether or not what the Bible says is true uh, that Jesus actually did rise from the dead And so I think it's a good question to ask. It's quite a claim the Bible makes that a man, stone cold dead, already in the grave, came back to life, never to die again. And please know, folks, that when we talk about a resurrection, we're not talking about a resuscitation. There's a difference resuscitations happen all the time today where somebody dies but quickly is brought back to life there have been thousands of books written on near-death experiences of people who have been resuscitated back from the dead but the claim of a resurrection of what the Bible claims with the life of Jesus it is very very different with a resurrection you have a death and then a period of time has elapsed so much so that the spirit has left the body and the body is dead. Uh, Cells have died. Neurons have stopped firing. Fluids, as we're going to see, have separated inside the person already. And so with a resurrection, what we're claiming is that somebody who was obviously and for a long time dead has now been brought back to life in a miraculous way. That's the claim of Easter. That's the claim of the resurrection. And just so that we're all clear as well, the entire truth claim of Christianity depends on Jesus' resurrection. It's true. In fact, the Bible itself says that without Jesus' resurrection, we have no Christian faith. So look at how First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. Look up here on the screen, says this. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's true. The logic simply being that if Jesus did not rise from the dead as he said he would, then he's not the incarnate son of God. He's not the one who came to pay the penalty for our sins. And he certainly doesn't have the power over death that he claimed to bring us eternal life. You see, the whole linchpin of Christianity, the hinge, if you will, for the door of eternal life is this idea of Jesus' resurrection of which if you do not have, you don't have Christianity. And yet the converse is also true. That's the good news of today, is that if Jesus did raise, was raised from the dead, then it's a game changer. All bets are now on, and that what Christians have been claiming for 2,000 years is indeed true. That Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, come for, as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world that he might bring us into relationship with God the Father. And the faith that you have, that you've placed in Jesus, if you've done so, is not in vain. Truly, folks, the resurrection matters. This is why this is such a big celebration. In fact, most agree that it matters most. Now, because of all of this, what I want to do this morning is take a close look at the facts and evidence of whether or not then the resurrection really happened. You see, if I was a preacher back in 17th century England in the Puritan day, I'd never do a sermon like we're about to do right now. I would never do it because for the first 1800 years of Christendom, nobody doubted whether the resurrection occurred. But as many of you know from your history books, about 200 years ago, a thing called the Enlightenment happened in the western part of the world, in which the age of reason was brought into our culture, and now you and I live in a world in which there's a lot of skepticism. Have you ever noticed that? There's a lot of skepticism among your neighbors, among your academic friends, among your family even, of whether or not the Bible's really true, and whether this resurrection thing really happened. And so I want to ask an honest question here today, taking a look at the evidence. Did the resurrection really happen? Is the Bible really right when it tells us about what's happened in history that affects you and I today? Now, before we go any further, I need to make a distinction between the kinds of proof that we need to talk intelligently about Jesus' resurrection. And to do this, I'm going to make a distinction between what we call scientific proof versus legal historical proof. Scientific proof versus historical proof. And here's the difference. If you and I try to prove something today by science, we use the eight-step scientific method that you learned in high school, and we try to empirically show something to be true by observing it and then repeating it over and over again, and then using our five senses to say, there it is, that's true. So for instance, if I wanted to prove to you that ice, when it melts, turns into liquid, what would I do? I'd bring a big block of ice up here on the stage and we'd all sit around for about 20 minutes or however long it takes, and sure enough, every time, it would turn into a liquid, if it's hot enough. That's how we prove it, that's a scientific method. And yet everybody agrees, all the experts agree, that to prove that George Washington lived or that Beethoven wrote his Fifth Symphony or that Mary Todd Lincoln struggled with depression, you can't use the scientific method, right? Because you can't repeat it and you can't observe it because it's an historical issue. For that, we need to resort to legal historical proof, which which means we look at the actual documents that talk about what happened and we ask ourselves, are they consistent? Do they make sense? Does this seem reasonable? Do they collate with the physical evidence both inside and outside these documents? There's ways to analyze the cogency of an historical claim. And so that's what I want to do with the Bible today. I want to put it under the microscope of that kind of historical examination. I want to take a look at some of the proposed theories that people give about the historical evidence of the resurrection and see if those stand up. And then I'm going to propose my own now before we go any further I want us to walk through what the Bible quickly does say about the resurrection there's four lines of evidence four things that the Bible tells us about what happened on that first Easter weekend and obviously the first thing that happened is that you had a death right a death all four gospel accounts tell us this: that Jesus was arrested put on trial found guilty beaten severely then subjected to capital punishment by being hung on a wooden cross Hands and feet nailed to it until he was dead. John records it this way. Look up here on the screen, John 19, 31 to 34. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who had also been crucified with him, Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came blood and water. But we're going to deal in a few minutes with one of the objections that Jesus wasn't actually dead. But just bear with me for right now. Give me a head nod that we can all see that at least John is telling us here that indeed the evidence was that he was dead. When they pierced his side and blood and water came out, the fluids had already separated, he he was dead at this time. And so you have Jesus being dead. And then notice the second line of evidence here, and that is preparations for burial preparations for burial. There are two accounts that tell us of this. John goes on to tell us in this chapter that we just read from that on the first day of Jesus's death, Joseph of Arimathea, one of Jesus's followers and friends, as well as Nicodemus, asked Pilate, the Roman governor, for the body of Jesus and Pilate gave it to them. And then John goes into detail on what kind of burial preparations they did. This will be important for us as we go along. See, they didn't have embalming back then, at least how we have it today. And so the way they prepared Jesus' body is that they took 75 pounds of spices, aloes and myrrh and things like that, and they wrapped Jesus in these 75 pounds of spices in linen cloth and placed him in a tomb that we assume was purchased by Joseph of Arimathea near the crucifixion site. And they did this so that the body would decompose without creating too much smell. And they did that as a way of of embalming somebody back before the modern day procedures we have today. And then Matthew tells us in his account what happens the next day. And that is that the religious leaders were worried about the followers of Jesus messing with his body. And so they asked Pilate for some help and protection. And three unusual things were granted by Pilate that just never occurs when it comes to a death back then. One, they posted guards at the tomb, four qualified fighting men to make sure nobody gets in or out. And then they put a stone, secondly, in front of the tomb. We have to assume it was about a one to one and a half, two ton stone to be large enough to cover a tomb of the normal size back then. And then the third thing they did is that they put a Roman seal on this tomb of which if anybody broke it, they would be put to death. They weren't messing around. This is all recorded in the Bible. It's the preparations for Jesus' burial. And what happens next the third line of evidence that we need to analyze is what critics actually have to contend with and try to disprove because it's the crux of it all is that next you have an empty tomb so you got Jesus's death you got him prepared for burial and put in a tomb and then you have an empty tomb I'm not going to read the full story for you it's found in Luke chapter 24 verses 1 through 12 it's the Easter story that many of us have read before but you remember how it goes on the morning of the third day, a few women go to the tomb to further prepare Jesus' body, and they find the stone rolled away and the body gone. And they claim to have say, seen two angels, and the two angels say something, just three words to Mary and the women there that are words that we now repeat every Christmas, every Easter, I'm sorry, for the last 2,000 years. and they are the words, "He is risen." Say it with me again, He is risen." So so the angels say those words to Mary. They're confused a little bit about what that means. So they run and get the disciples. We'll get to them in a minute here. And the disciples who are hiding out send Peter and John racing to this tomb. Peter gets there first, sees that the tomb is empty, and is also wondering what's going on. And then you have the fourth movement in this journey, in this event, what we call the multiple appearances of Jesus. Jesus appeared on no more than multiple occasions, recorded in six different New Testament accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and 1 Corinthians, chronicling multiple appearances after the resurrection of Jesus over a 40-day period of time, a month and a half. And so check out 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6, what it says. It says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, here it is, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive when this was written, though some have fallen asleep. And so 500 different people, the New Testament claims, saw Jesus alive. And this is just one attestation. There's five others that talk about the fact that Jesus rose again from the grave and that people saw him walking around Jerusalem and Galilee, the Holy Land. And so this is the evidence that we need to contend with. A death, a burial, an empty tomb, and multiple appearances. And as I mentioned earlier, in our highly skeptical age today, given this evidence, it will not surprise you that people have proposed some theories to try to explain this away. Very briefly, let me share with you the five most popular theories of what they say is really happening here and a response that you and I might want to have when we're having an intelligent dialogue with people. The first theory was actually proposed in Jesus's day. It's called the stolen body theory. That's how people explain what's happening here, the stolen body theory. This is actually proposed in Jesus's day by the religious leaders of his day, but it was popularized about 200 years ago, right after the Enlightenment, by some deists who wanted to disprove the resurrection. And the theory simply goes like this, that the guards fell asleep at the tomb the disciples sneaked past them, rolled the stone away, stole the body, all in order to fake a resurrection. And then the Jewish leaders, embarrassed by this, paid the guards to corroborate the story that the disciples had stolen the body. And everyone, the disciples and the guards and all, had been lying about it for years after that until the time that they all died off. That's what some people propose. Now, Given that theory, let's look at the evidence and ask ourselves, could this be a realistic option? And the primary thing that you have to consider when you consider this whole idea of a stolen body is the state of the disciples, the emotional and even physical state of the disciples who supposedly stole the body. Because you see, two days before this supposed body snatching, the disciples are described as, and I quote, forsaking him and fleeing. That's how the disciples are described. So when the women go to find them, they are hiding in somebody's house, terribly afraid of the Roman and Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death, and rightly so. These are uneducated, frightened, confused men. Quite frankly, and I don't mean to be disrespectful here, they were cowards. And that's exactly the way that the New Testament portrays them before the day of Pentecost. They were afraid. Jesus told them they were all going to scatter. Remember that? And what was their response? We're never going to scatter, man. We're with you. We're fans forever. And the second Jesus went on to be crucified, they all scattered. And the next scene we find is them hiding out for their very lives. And so I have to ask you, if we're being honest and objective about this, do these sound like the type of men who could sneak past an imperial Roman guard force, roll away a stone, risk death, and steal a body? William Craig is a PhD in philosophy from the University of Birmingham in England. He also has a doctorate in theology from the University of Munich in Germany. He's one of the foremost scholars on New Testament history alive today, and this is what he says in response to this theory. He says it is psychologically impossible to attribute to the disciples the cunning and daring to pull off such a ruse. At the time of the crucifixion, the disciples were confused, disorganized, fearful, doubting, and burdened with mourning, not mentally motivated or equipped to engineer such a hoax. Hence, to explain the empty tomb and resurrection appearances by a conspiracy theory seems out of the question. At the very least, folks, it doesn't seem very likely. And if that doesn't grab you, you've got to at least then consider the integrity of the disciples, right? I mean, these were men who would go on to set up one of the most lofty, high systems of morality ever known to the Western world that for 2,000 years has been the foundation of modern society. And you got to ask, if if these men could set up such a moral system that Christianity has had, do do you think they would have initially lied about stealing a body in order to set all this up? It just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem like the disciples stole the body. And so others have suggested what they see as a more benign theory then, a more innocent one. They suggest, well, maybe the disciples and the women got the wrong tomb. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. And they're serious about this. This was actually popularized by Crisop Lake in an early 20th century book called The Historical Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. And Lake basically argued that the women who were emotionally strung out and stressed simply went to the wrong tomb. And that's why they didn't find the body. And proponents of this would actually, if you're having coffee with them today, would say, you know what, hey, it's no different than when you go to Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport and you lose your car. I mean, you go into the airport, you park your car, and how many of you have come out and said, doggone it, where's my car? And then you even go to a Ford Escape that looks just like yours and you're trying to get in And you realize that's not your Ford Escape, that yours is the one over there in D13 or something like that. And they argue that if it's that easy for you and I to lose a car, then maybe they just got the wrong tomb. Again, okay, it's plausible, but let's consider the evidence. Now, for those who contend that that this would be a possible solution to understanding the resurrection, you have to consider Luke chapter 23, verse 55. Some of you are saying, what's Luke 23, say? I'm glad you asked. Look up here on the screen. Luke 23, verse 55 says, The women who had come with him, the hymn here is Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who buried Jesus, who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Interesting. The gospel writers, who, by the way, are writing on parchment leaves 2,000 years ago and counting every word made sure that they included this detail that the women made note of where Jesus' body was laid and where the tomb was. We know why they did this. They did this because of, in a couple of days after that they were going to come and anoint Jesus' body further for further preparation of burial. They weren't thinking resurrection. They were thinking our Savior is dead and we want to honor his life even more. So they made special note where the tomb was. And so again, we gotta ask, if anybody's reading this with open mind, does it seem likely that women who made a special note among themselves on where this tomb was would so easily then go to the wrong tomb? Probably not. Any more than what you and I have learned to do, if you ever have misplaced your car at Phoenix Sky Harbor, as I have, what do you do the next time? You make special note on where it is. I went to pick up my brother just last week at the airport, and his wife and kids were already here, and so I took little Mia, his daughter, with me. It was just her and I spending some uncle, niece time in the car there, and when we got there, I knew I'd forget where I parked my car, so I said to Mia as we are walking in, I want you to remember D13. I want you to remember where our car is, and sure enough, 10 minutes later, we get to my brother and I looked at Mia and I said, where are we parked again, D13, dummy, D13. We all do things like that. When we make special note of something, we tend to not forget, especially if we have others to help us. That's exactly what happened with these women here. And if that doesn't grab you, if you still believe this theory of the wrong tomb, then you also got to believe then that the guards were guarding the wrong tomb, the disciples also confused the wrong tomb, and so did the Jewish leaders who most certainly would have checked it out for themselves. In other words, you have to believe that everybody had the wrong tomb. And that's probably not very likely. It doesn't seem likely that it was the wrong tomb. Maybe something else, but not that. And so a third theory has received much attention, especially in this past century century with the rise of popular psychology. Some have said, well, maybe they thought they saw a resurrection, but because they so wanted Jesus to be resurrected, he really wasn't, but their minds just convinced them that they did. They call it the hallucination theory. And again, it's one to contend with. They argue that people who really want to see something happen tend to see what they want to see, And that the disciples, though not meaning to, were so distraught and grieved about Jesus, their Savior, whom they had left everything to follow, is now dead. And so they convinced themselves, even though they didn't mean to, that he really was alive. And they convinced themselves, they believed in their own mind that he is resurrected when he didn't. They hallucinated this. And again, though this is plausible, let's consider this rationally. Now, the good news about this theory here is that we do live in a highly psychological day and age and we know a lot about hallucinations and one of the key things you'll read in a psychology book about hallucinations is that they tend to be private events not group events do you know what I mean by that so if you were to go to a mental institution today there's a good chance that you would meet somebody who bless his or her heart is struggling with a hallucination their minds not working correctly But what you would not see in a mental institution is an entire group huddled in the cafeteria all having the same hallucination together. That's not what happens with hallucinations. By their very definition, they are defined as, and I quote, the perception of objects or patterns of light that are not objectively present. So somebody's mind plays tricks on them. And it would be unprecedented in the history of our understanding of hallucinations for 500 people to have the same one at the same time for a period of one and a half months, which is what the New Testament claims. And so it just doesn't fit the idea of a hallucination. But again, if that doesn't grab you, and you say, yeah, well, I still think it's possible, then couldn't the Roman or Jewish leaders just have produced a body? I mean, it was in their best interest to not have this idea of Jesus being resurrected, getting all throughout town, let alone the whole world some 2,000 years later. And and when people do struggle with hallucinations, one of the things that psychologists do to bring them back into reality is give them some physical evidence to show that what they're hallucinating is wrong. So all they would have to do was produce Jesus' body and show people that, no, he didn't really rise from the dead. I don't think that this hallucination theory at the end holds up against the evidence that we find in the New Testament, especially when you consider multiple appearances. And by its very nature, then, this leads to a fourth theory that people have suggested, and this is an interesting one. They call it the apparent death theory or the swoon theory. This was actually suggested by the father of modern-day liberal theology today, a guy by the name of Schleiermacher, And what Schleiermacher contended is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he only fainted and appeared dead, and later was revived in the tomb and then pretended to be resurrected. And in all good faith, he said, you know, medical knowledge wasn't back then what it is today, and so they kind of just misdiagnosed Jesus being dead, and that's what's happened with the resurrection. But again, let's consider the evidence, because it's all right in front of us. Uh, the main thing we have to contend with here is that, remember who it was that declared Jesus dead? Who said that Jesus was dead? It was the soldiers. That's exactly right, Pat. It was the soldiers. So it wasn't the disciples that declared him dead. It wasn't the political leaders who declared him dead. It was the soldiers, men who were fighting men who dealt with death all the time, that declared Jesus dead. And it even wasn't just a soldier, but it was the centurion, the head soldier. So in Mark 15, verses 44 and 45, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So it wasn't just some... You know, anybody who's saying that Jesus was dead here, it was a man who dealt with death all the time and whose job was to make sure that death occurred. And then even more, you've got to consider the nature of Jesus' death. I remember all that he had been through. He was up all Thursday night, beaten on the face and head with fists and a stick. He was scourged with a Roman cat of nine tails that ripped his back to shreds, alone capable of killing someone. Then a crown of thorns, one to two inches thick, was set on his head, and he was bleeding. He then had seven-inch spikes put through his hands and his feet. He was then put on a cross where he would slowly asphyxiate to death over a period of about five hours. And then to make sure that he was dead, they cut his side where, again, the fluids had separated and showed that he was dead. And we're expected to believe that at this point, he supposedly just fainted, was pronounced dead, placed in a cool tomb, bleeding with no medical attention for 36 hours, spontaneously revived, shed 75 pounds of grave clothes, moved a two-ton boulder out of the way, crept past four trained Roman guards, walked 12 miles to Emmaus, where he lived 40 days in hiding, making spot appearances, and then disappeared into all obscurity. Folks, I got to tell you, I'm not trying to be mean here, but eventually you have to go, I think it's a stretch. I just don't think that that theory holds water given the story before us. And quite frankly, this theory hasn't been held for about 100 years now anyways. But then we have the most difficult theory to deal with. See, if I was you and I was a skeptic, not that you're a skeptic, but some of you might be, and we were having a cup of coffee. I'd hear these first four theories, and I'd say, yeah, Jamie, but guess what? There's one you're forgetting, and there's one that blows all of these out of the water. And I'd say, I know which one you're talking about. And they'd say, yeah, you keep relying on the New Testament, but the New Testament isn't true. It's a bunch of legends. It's a bunch of made-up stories. That's actually no different than, than the Greek odyssey. Homer's Odyssey, no different than Aesop's Fable, no different than the Lone Ranger, no different than Robin Hood, no different than St. Patrick, uh, the little leprechaun St. Patrick. Jamie, this is a a made-up story that fits the storyline of legends, and you keep referring to to it as history. Come on. It's called the legend theory. And what they simply argue is that the New Testament accounts, though Jesus really did exist, nobody disagrees on that, that Jesus was an historical figure. What we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is more about legend and embellishment than it is fact. That Jesus might have lived, but the things that are told about him are kind of the things that we would tell about anybody that was more of legend. And I will tell you, this is a theory that we must deal with. It's a theory that must be analyzed closely because it's popular and strong among critics today. And I love it when people actually bring up this theory of the New Testament being a legend. Because I don't even try to quote chapter and verse to them. What I suggest to them is let's have a cogent and intelligent discussion then about the formations of legends and ask themselves if the New Testament fits the bill. And what I mean by that is that we do, in our modern day world, have a really good understanding from our understanding of literature how legends develop. And we know that one of the keys to legends is that it takes a long time, multiple generations, for a legend to become what it is today. So I joked earlier about St. Patrick. St. Patrick was actually a saint back in about 5th, 6th century in Ireland. He really did exist. But the idea of a little green guy at the end of a rainbow in which we all dress up on green on St. Patrick's Day didn't come until years, hundreds of years after that. The same could be said of of Paul Bunyan. The same could be said of, of any legendary figure that might have had some historic significance before, but hundreds of years later, and we can imagine, it would tend to take on some fanciful ideas. And once you understand that, you realize that the New Testament doesn't fit that bill. See, the New Testament documents, we date to about 50 to 90 A.D. That's when they were written, the Gospel accounts of Jesus. And Jesus died in 33 A.D. So the time between when the New Testament documents were written and the time between when Jesus lived is way too short for legend to have developed. People would have seen right through it in the first and second century. And to be even more sure, we actually do have some 2nd century documents that pretend to be 1st century documents that try to pass themselves off as Gospels. You might have seen this on the History Channel. So we have the Gospel according to Thomas, the Gospel according to Peter. We have books that are attributed to Mary. But we know that they all date to the 2nd century because of internal and external evidence. And it's fascinating when you read what they say about Jesus' life, now you got legends. So let me show you this is what the Gospel of Peter says about this exact account we're looking at here today the resurrection again a second-century document written 150 years after Jesus' time this is what it says it says the stone rolled away by itself three angels appeared heads reaching into the heavens the third was led by a hand from heaven and they were all followed by a walking cross folks that's a legend You can see how the simple story from the New Testament, that the stone was rolled away and that there appeared two angels, has now taken on legendary embellishment here. A walking cross, it's three angels, heads going up into heaven. We read that stuff today and go, now that is a legend. And the point is, is that the New Testament doesn't read like that at all. The New Testament, on the other hand, reads more like a history book. It's why some of you don't like reading it, though you need to read it. It reads more like it's true. And we need to further consider that legends of this sort cannot support the longevity and the spontaneous rise of Christianity. I mean, if you believe the legend theory, as some do today, you would have, them be- you'd have us believe then that the fearful, rejected disciples, in shock because of Jesus' death then dreamed up this idea of a resurrection, preached it flawlessly for 30 years, went to their deaths because of it, and this legend now serves as the basis for Western society and has gone on to become what Kenneth Scott latere calls the most single potent force in the history of humankind. All this because of a legend no more reliable than Robin Hood or the Lone Ranger. I don't think that makes sense. That doesn't fit the evidence that you and I have. Five theories, all floating around out there, all suggested in our modern age, from a stolen body to the wrong tomb, from a mass hallucination to an apparent death, to the rise of a legend. And yet none of them, I believe, really does justice to what we read in the four gospel accounts handed down to us for the last 2,000 years. And so I prepared you for this. This leads me to a sixth, conclusion that people the likes of C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and many others over the years have finally concluded, and it's this, that maybe it really happened. That maybe the claim that the Bible makes about Jesus and his life really happened. And that if it really happened, give me two clicks here guys, it changes everything. And that's the point I want to leave you with that if Jesus really did rise from the dead and I think the evidence is in then he is who he said he was namely God come for you that all the things he said he did had meaning and purpose most important his death on a cross for your sins and the power the purpose the presence and the peace that the Bible claims can be yours is not a pipe dream it's not a wish fulfillment, it's not for your grandma, it's for you. And the reality is is that Jesus came for you because He loves you, and he's proven it to you, rooted in history, through His resurrection from the dead. Monday night, a strange thing happened to me. It was kind of a funny thing. I, a good friend of mine called me and Said, I just got back from spring break. I got a book that I read and I want you to read it. And I said, Good, next time I see you, hand me the book and I probably won't read it. And he said, No, I want you to read it so bad that I'm coming over right now and I'm going to give it to you. I was kind of intrusive, but he is one of my close friends, and so I'm sitting on my back porch, and, and he comes into the house, and he comes down, and he gives me his book, and he's got it all signed over to me, and he's so excited about this book, and you know, I'm given a lot of books, and so I kind of patronized him and said, well, really appreciate the book and, and all this, and and when he left, I read the front cover and then the back cover, and I thought, well, it's kind of an interesting book. It's one of these new Christian books, you know, out by a, a, a pastor who had some neat discoveries, and so I sat there on my back porch and I read the first chapter. And I'm the first to admit when I'm wrong. Actually, maybe the second, Abby, right? But I admit when I'm wrong. And and, and, and I and, and I sat there and I thought, this is a really good book. And one of the things that caught me in the very first chapter of this book is the distinction that this pastor makes between fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. He says that in America today, we got lots of fans of Jesus Christ. Uh, yet we don't have very many followers. He argues that 95% of Americans today would be a fan of Jesus. Even if you don't go to church, even if you're not really into religious things, that you've heard of Jesus and you go, yeah, he was a pretty cool dude, I'm a fan. And yet what he also points out is that fans tend to sit on the sidelines. Fans tend to cheer but don't ever get in the game. Fans tend to be kind of fair weather, don't they? If you're up, you're up, if you're down, you're down. Whereas followers are people who have gotten out of the bleachers and are now on the field. Followers are those who are in it through thick and thin. Followers, he argued, is what Jesus is after, not fans. And I thought what a great thought to leave you with on Easter Sunday. You see, many of us could probably give intellectual assent to what we've been talking about here today. C.S. Lewis once said that he came, into the, came, came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, because he intellectually believed it, but his heart didn't quite want to be turned over to God. And some of you could agree with that here today. But maybe the thing that will help you turn the corner is to realize that though Jesus is glad that you're a fan, what he really wants you to be is a follower. What he wants more than anything from you, from you and Easter will be a great day to cement this in your heart is for you to be a follower of him And some of you think what does it take to be a follower well first it just takes a commitment of your heart and mind to say Jesus I'm done playing games I want to accept you as Lord and Savior I don't want to be just a fan off in the bleachers I want to be a follower of you you have to make a decision what Bill Hybels calls a defining moment for you to do that maybe you're ready to do that today and then if you don't know what it means to be a follower we'd invite you back on some Sundays between now and Christmas Because we talk about every Sunday here what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's no secret that our name is Scottsdale Bible Church. And the reason we call ourselves Scottsdale Bible is because we just talk about this book Sunday after Sunday and what it says about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how to pray, how to fellowship with each other, how to be involved in service, how to read the Bible and get the most out of it. Those are the things we talk about here. We have classes that help people with that. And yet it begins with your resolve. It begins with your faith and your decision to stop being a fan and to be a follower. will not you all pray with me? Father God, I thank you that uh, on a day that we celebrate Easter like this that we end with a wonderful call that Jesus gave so often and that is to come deny ourselves and follow him. And God, it's hard for some of us who have been following you for so long to contain ourselves on a day like this because we so desperately want people to know the joy and the blessing and the goodness in being a follower of Jesus. And it's almost hard to contain that in words. So Lord, we rely on your spirit to do his work in the hearts of people. And I pray that's what might be happening right now, that your spirit who woos and calls and draws us to your son Christ would be doing that right now. And that Lord, if anybody here would dare to believe to choose to become a follower of Jesus here today that Lord you might give them that assurance where they are right now that the resolve they are making you hear and that you see and it's between them and you and all heaven is rejoicing and then Lord help us to follow up <laughs> on following and help us Lord to be ones who are now not afraid to stand up for Jesus in our world to continue to share him with those around us Lord to show it in our actions as we now follow him God thank you for what we've celebrated this weekend, for the death of Jesus Christ that has bought us eternal forgiveness. Lord, for the fact that Easter shows us his victory over the grave and that we have eternity now with him. So Lord, follow we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. Amen. Happy Easter. We'll see you all soon.